The reading for this morning is taken from Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Peter explains his actions. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being led down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals on the earth, of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea, Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered a man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in the house and say, send a chopper for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles, repentance unto life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come now to Consider your word. Lord, we pray that our hearts might be fertile ground for your spirit, that you would speak to us in words that we can understand and allow us to accept what you say. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you remember the catchphrase, I don't believe it? I think it was Victor Meldrew, wasn't it? I don't believe it. 
Well, we have one of those I don't believe it moments in Acts chapter 11 this morning. I wonder if you've ever had one of those. Maybe there were some Liverpool fans the other week who woke up in the morning and thought, I don't believe it. We beat, Liverpool, we beat Barcelona 4-0. Unbelievable. Well, today the I don't believe it moment comes from the church in Jerusalem. The leaders in Jerusalem are meeting together. They've got word of what Peter was doing and they summon Peter and basically ask him to give an account. Peter, we don't believe what we've just heard. You've gone and eaten and preached with Gentiles. Now, if anybody was going to come out swinging in their defense, it would be Peter, wouldn't it? I mean, he was a feisty old apostle. But it seems that Peter's reaction to them was, I don't believe it either. So this morning, we're going to look at why this issue that we've read about is so important and what the implications are for us. Now, the book of Acts deals with the birth of the early church. We start with just a handful of frightened disciples locked in a room. And by the time we get to the end of the book, the gospel has been spread and churches have been planted all across the Middle East, spanning as far across as Ethiopia and Rome. And Acts chapter 11, in a sense, is a watershed in the whole book. Before Acts chapter 11, the gospel was for the Jews. Afterwards, it's for everyone. It's the turning point when the Jewish Christians accept the gospel is not just for them. To really understand what a theological earthquake this was, you have to put yourself in their shoes. In the Old Testament, salvation came by being a Jew. And the sign of that salvation was circumcision. Others could be saved, but they needed to become Jews and be circumcised. So the rest of the world were unclean, unsaved, and the Jews would have nothing to do with them. So Peter has this vision, and the vision is a sheet coming down out of heaven, and it's full of animals that Peter would have considered unclean. And God says to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Peter objects, it's not permitted, Lord, it's not permitted. But he gets this very interesting response. God says to him, what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean. What is God talking about? Is he talking about these unclean animals, or is he talking about people? For at that very moment, the doorbell rings, and three men invite him to come to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, in Caesarea. While God has been speaking to Peter, he's also been speaking to Cornelius. Isn't that the way a God often works, speaking to two different people, parting something in two different hearts to achieve his purpose? The other week, I was walking up to church for Thursday communion, and I had my headphones on, and I was listening to a sermon on Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian. And I came in, I sat at the back, somewhere near where Steve is sitting, and Paul was preaching. And what did he preach on? Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian. Two sermons, same subject, within the same hour. God speaking, isn't he? And often he does that to achieve his purpose. Both Peter and Cornelius were listening. 
And as Peter starts speaking in the house of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit comes down on all those who are gathered. It was just like Peter had experienced at Pentecost. And Peter says this, who was I to withstand God? So this watershed means that salvation is not just for the enclave of Jews, but it's for the whole world. So what does this passage say to us about about all this? The first thing I want to think about is that Peter himself never stopped learning. Peter never stopped learning. You'd have thought as a disciple he'd have had his fill, wouldn't you? He learned faith when he had to walk on the water at Galilee. He learned humility when he said he would die with Jesus. He learned remorse when he denied his saviour three times. He learned restoration over that breakfast time on the beach where Jesus says, do you love me? Isn't it Peter who's the one who preaches at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down and 5,000 are saved? Surely he was now fully equipped as an apostle But the answer is no, Peter is still learning. I remember years ago talking to a Belgian colleague of mine at work and we were talking about learning languages. And if you've ever been to Belgium and know any Belgians, you'll know that they they know at least four languages, if not more. And she said to me, well, we call somebody who speaks three languages a trilinguist. And we call a person who speaks two languages a bilinguist. And we call a person who speaks one language an Englishman. (laughs) We don't have a great reputation for learning. But the question for us is, are we still learning? Do you have that desire to know more of God, more of what he wants, more of what he wants you to be? Because if we stop learning, in effect what we're saying to God is, I've got no interest in what you want. I don't really have an interest in seeing your kingdom advanced in my life. I've got no interest in serving you. And is that what we want to be telling God? We learn not because we must, but because it's an act of love. Peter kept learning. How do we learn? We learn as we read the scriptures. We learn as we talk to God in prayer. We learn as we hear God's word expounded, either from the page or from the pulpit. We listen and we learn. But more than just learning, what else does this passage say to us? The second thing we see is that the stubborn and critical hearts of the Jerusalem church were turned to hearts of rejoicing. See, God's salvation to the Gentiles was anathema to Peter and anathema to the leaders in Jerusalem. It's not what they believed, so therefore it must have been wrong. And critical was their default position. Eating with the Gentiles, that's not the way we do things here. Why is it that so often our default position is to be stubborn? Reminds me of the um, young boy who was arguing with his dad about what one and one made, and his dad was trying to persuade him it made two, but he was convinced it was 11. So in frustration, the dad said, right, well, here's some money, go and buy two ice creams. And when you come back, give one to me and one to your brother. Oh, that's not fair. What about me? Oh, his dad said, that's simple. You can have the other nine. (laughs) 
We're slow to learn, and we're stubborn to change. Why is it that we are more easily, more, find it more easy to oppose than to support? There's an apocryphal story told of a church minister who really felt that God had clearly given him a vision for the direction of the church. And he called the church leaders together, and he shared this vision with huge enthusiasm. And at the end, the chairman of the meeting said, well, let's put the minister's vision to the vote. The result was 12 to 1. 12 against, 1 for. You know who the one was, don't you? Well, the minister was so convinced that he called them to pray. And he began passionately to pray and fervently to call on God in prayer. And suddenly there was a huge crack of thunder and a bolt of lightning comes through the roof, splits the table they're sitting around apart, and they all bundled onto the floor. And as they get up and brush themselves down and dust themselves off, the minister says to the chairman, ah, now what do you think about that? And the chairman replies, well, I guess that changes the vote. I think it's now 12 to 2. <laughs> we are stubborn and slow to change. And by being stubborn, sometimes we can actually be opposing God. We can be opposing God's will because the paradigm we have of him doesn't fit what he wants to do. We only believe that he can work within our small parameters. If the church in Jerusalem hadn't changed its view on that day, then the gospel of the Gentiles would have shuddered to a halt. But their hearts were changed. They realized that salvation wasn't just for them, it was for all mankind. God's plans were bigger than theirs. Does stubbornness limit what God can do in you? Peter didn't stop learning. And the stubbornness of the Jerusalem church was overcome and salvation was available for all. So why is this important? Why, why is this the turning point in the book of Acts? Why does Luke tell this story in chapter 10 at great length and then repeats the whole thing again in chapter 11? Why is it that important? Well, the reason is this. Because salvation is not for the Jews, it was for everyone. I want you to think of it this way. I don't know what the exact number is, but if you calculate the population worldwide today of Jews, it's somewhere in the region of 20 million. And what is the population of planet Earth? 7.7 billion. If you do the maths, one quarter of 1% of the population of the world are Jews. If salvation was for the, for the Jews alone, 99.75% of the world population would be condemned and without hope. But salvation is for everyone. Now, not everyone because you're a citizen of planet Earth. No one has a right to become part of the kingdom of God. We're all breakers of God's law. We're all subject to justice, and justice means that we don't have a place in God's family. The truth is, whether Jew or Gentile, we've all sinned. We're all out. And were that at the end of the story, 
then we would all join the devil and his angels. But that would mean that God was hard-hearted, that God had just turned his back on us. But God is love. God is compassionate. God is merciful. And justice needs to be served, but he has served it. He served it on Calvary. He served that sentence. He didn't need to die on the cross. He didn't need to, but we needed him to. We needed what he offered, which was divine substitution. God exchanged places with us. He died, you live. He suffered, you're free. He became sin, you become righteousness. Now we're properly alive, now we're free, now we're transformed. And because of Acts chapter 11, you, who are part of that 99 and three-quarter percent, you are invited to be part of God's family. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because it's offered to you as a free gift. Is your heart open this morning to receive that invitation? Are your horizons big enough to realize that this is what God wants for you today? In the beginning, Peter didn't didn't believe that salvation was for you. And the Jerusalem church didn't believe that salvation was for you. But the question this morning is, do you believe it? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. God offers to take the load that crushes you. He offers to take that pain that you're carrying. He offers to take the guilt of your heart and to take it away. Will you give that to him this morning? There are nail marks in his hands which say, I love you. I've plumbed the depths of hell for you so that you might rise and live again. And his invitation is, take this hand. Let me give you a new heart and a new life. Are you willing to give your life to the one who gave his life for you? Are you willing to allow him to include you in his eternal family? Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He prayed. He worshipped. There's a lot about him in chapter 10. He gave generously and God was pleased with him. But none of that saved him. We're told that he needed Peter in verse 14 of chapter 11, and it says, He will tell you words through which you and your household will be saved. He was a good man. He was doing all the right things, but he needed to be saved. And salvation comes by hearing and accepting. It wasn't his devout life that saved him. It wasn't all his religious observance that saved him. It wasn't his good works and his giving that saved him. What saved him was hearing God's word, God's message, and responding in faith to that message. That's what God asks of us this morning. Will we say yes? God is minded that we should be part of his family. And that's his invitation this morning. That's his free offer, his gift to you.
Come and lay all that burdens you at his feet. He doesn't demand it, but he invites you. Will you say, yes, Lord, yes, I hear your invitation. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I come. Let's just bow our heads together for a moment. There are two responses to God's call. There's the stubborn heart which says, I don't believe it. The heart that hears the call of God and won't respond. And there's the heart that in all its brokenness says, yes, Lord, I come. Father God, every heart here is open to you this morning. You know what we're thinking. Before your all-seeing eye, I confess that I've offended you and rebelled against you. I've been self-centered and I've put myself first. Father God, forgive me. I turn to you. I want to know the warmth and joy of being held in your arms. I want to know the love of reconciliation. Father, I say to you this morning, yes, I love you. I come to you. I am yours. Take me as I am and make me what you desire. To the glory of Jesus, your Son, and the Saviour of all. Amen.